I said, how many people on their first time singing on a worship team get the song that is the core of a whole sermon? So we, we have sung that song in the past, you know, regularly, I guess. Not so much lately, but every time I, I try to tell people that that song is an adult Christian song. It's really, if, if you think about it, it's really a prayer as much as it's a song, probably more than it's a song. But it's, it's an adult song. It's an adult prayer. And you need to be careful what you ask for because when you ask in God's will, he's happy to give it to you. Now, my guess is he's happy to give this to you anyway because it's how it is. But it's really good that we understand and that we ask. So when I got saved... Well, actually, it's before I got saved. When everybody else thought I got saved, when I raised my hand to the altar call thing, but I didn't have any idea from nothing about anything. I just knew that that guy on his knees between the chairs, who I thought was a goof, had something that I didn't have. I mean, I, you know, I thought I was cool. He's not cool. And it bugged me. I was like, the cool guy should have more than the not cool guy. Forgive me. I'm, I'm not a Christian. Then I had a lot of growing to do. I wouldn't think like that now. And so I just raised my hand. I didn't get saved. I promise you I didn't get saved. Eventually I got saved. Point is, once people thought I was saved, all they wanted to tell me was how much God loved me. All they wanted to tell me was how much God wanted to bless me. All they wanted to tell me was how much better my life was going to be. But that wasn't my witness, like their witness to me. Not that they were all, you know, miserable people, but I remember telling Therese, man, we're going to have to hunker down because all hell's going to break loose because this one's got this and that one's got that and that one's got that. Huh? Yeah, well, yeah, I, was, I didn't mean to prophesy, but, but at the end of the day, the message, the gospel message that people were telling me, which I was very happy to receive in my ignorance, is God loves me. I have a sense for what that means. God wants to bless me. I have a sense for what that means. It turns out I was, both of those statements were true. Jesus said, I didn't come, I came that you might have life. Abundant life. Probably the first Greek word I ever learned behind the English was, now I don't know it, per, per, perisos, perisos, the word behind abundant, because I was holding on to it. I'm like, man, God, can I just give you a list of what you can do to abundant my life, right? <laughs> I think that the general perception of what that means, even in the church, and the truth of what that means are about that far apart. So when you start your walk with the Lord with a perception that's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches, sooner or later your reckoning time is coming. And and it might actually wreck your faith because if that fortress gets to be so big and then it doesn't play out the way your imagination thought it would, where are you, God? I thought you loved me, God. You know what I mean? Instead of what's actually going on in the fact that God does love you, in the fact that he does want to bless you, in the fact that he came that you might have life more abundant. But what that looks like scripturally is real different than at least the way I was brought into the kingdom by very wonderful, well-meaning people that just didn't know what they were talking about. (laughs) Everybody wants everybody to love Jesus, so they paint a picture of Jesus that they think people will love. I say Jesus is beautiful. All you got to do is look at that cross to know that Jesus is beautiful. Then tell them what Jesus says. 
Because otherwise, sooner or later, if, they, if they're going to stay with Jesus, they're going to have to figure it out anyway. Might as well start out at the beginning. Amen? All right. So if you're a Christian, think for a second, what's the goal of life? Or before you're a Christian, you can think about, right? That my whole list was, was pre-Christian perspective. I mean, we already lived on a, a nice house. We already lived on the lake, already had boats. I'm thinking, Lord, boy, this is going to be awesome. All the stuff you're going to give me on top of that, right? That's the world. That was me. You talk about identity. That was where my identity was. My dad died when uh, I was 11 in 1970. Uh, my mom was a secretary. She was smart like crazy. You know, every bit of money she could put away, she put away. She lived, we lived what I thought was a very comfortable life, but we didn't have lifestyles of the rich and famous to tempt us on the television. I didn't know how other people lived. You know, we were very comfortable, felt like we had a great life until you see other stuff, right? I never would have dreamt. But that's the way that we perceive life. But that's not the way life is for the Christian. Let me give you, well, I'm... (laughs) I don't, I, just let me tell you, the pendulum might swing a little this way today. If, if the Lord convicts me of that, then next week I'll swing it back a little bit and talk about abundant life, you know, in, and that, that uh, the scripture says that your joy might be full, that Jesus has given you his peace. All those things are in a context. And then ultimately the reward comes primarily in heaven, right? The reward now is, is that we reward, uh, who made the thing for you, the thing, uh, that the lamb might receive the reward for his suffering. Yeah, yeah, the church gave Megan Campbell, uh, Keith and Patty's daughter, made this thing. And that's, that's what life is about right now, is that the lamb, Jesus, might receive the reward for his suffering. And there's a process for how that happens, and, and it has to do with us. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you can answer this question a lot of ways. You said heaven, that would be a great answer. It's not the answer I'm going to paint today, but it's not a wrong answer. For a Christian... I can see the goal of, of our walk with the Lord in some of these scriptures. Ephesians chapter four, fifteen and 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So part of our life is to continue to grow, to mature, until we grow into the fullness of Christ, who is the head, our head, into that fullness. So there's a marching forward process of growing and maturing in the Lord. Second Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So as we're growing... If we're growing, there's a transformation process that's happening. And that transformation is from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then Romans eight twenty-eight and 29, and we know that God causes all things. Now, here's a scripture we use pretty loose a lot, right? We have a, a little phrase we use when we go through something tough. It's like, well, that's an all thing. 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 It says, but we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we we stop quoting that scripture at that point. But if we go on, this is what we see. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. 
So that, boy, that's a big phrase for today too. Just listen for so that. So that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. So all of the things that come against us that, that Patty testified about today, that, you know, that different stories, those are all things. And God uses all things for good. But we have to understand what good is. The context is the, the good that God uses is to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. So that's the, that's the goal that we're going to speak about today is to be like Jesus. And I'm telling you what, I prayed for years and years. I still pray, but not like I used to. I want to be like Jesus. Do what you have to do, God. Test me, try me, prove me, refine me, like the gold, like the gold. Not really having any sense for what I was asking for, except I really did want to be like Jesus. I wanted to love like Jesus. I wanted to be fearless like Jesus. I wanted to be like Jesus. And I prayed that prayer. And now, in current sight and in hindsight, I can see God helping me to be like Jesus, that the goal is that I would be like Jesus. If I'm like Jesus, I'm going to go to heaven. If I'm like Jesus, people are going to get saved. If I'm like Jesus, people are going to get healed. So you you could take that whole list and summarize it. If we be just like Jesus, then the outcome is going to be just like the outcome for Jesus. But the process was tough for Jesus, wasn't it? Right? Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. That sounds like a good one. And gave himself up for her. What what was Jesus' outcome on behalf of the church? A cross, a scourging, humiliation. I mean, no, no pillow, no place to lay his head. So I, I'm, I'm going to speak to the goal being like Jesus and primarily to the process. What does that process from the scriptures look like? New Testament scriptures, by the way. So just for perspective, let's, let's take a peek at Jesus, just one scripture that speaks to Jesus. And isn't it funny that Jesus, who was perfect, right? We know he was sinless. How do we know he was sinless? There you go. You guys listen sometimes. It's awesome. Yes, because he was resurrected, we know he was sinless. The wages of sin is? Death couldn't hold him. Why? Because he had no sin. There was no wage to pay. Therefore, in the resurrection, we know that Jesus actually was accepted by God, and he was only could be accepted by God if he was perfect and sinless. So we know that. Jesus was perfect. But the Scripture says, Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him... For whom all things and through whom all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons, that's us, to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus was perfect, yet he was perfected through sufferings. And we talked about this one a few weeks ago, so I won't go into a lot of detail about it, but there were certain things that Jesus had to experience that as our high priest, would make him a perfect high priest. And the way that he learned those things was through suffering. Where do you think we're going with this one? Before we get there, let me just talk a minute about contentment. Philippians four eleven through 13. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Now, here's a guy who knew some suffering, right? He was stoned, they thought, to death. They just left him laying there, but he didn't actually die, dragged himself up. He was... Cain whipped, he was shipwrecked, he was cold, he was imprisoned, he was, I mean, this is a guy that understood suffering. Here's what he says. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled 
and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul was content, but he says that he was content because he learned to be content. And, and honestly, Jesus, when, when, when he met Paul on the donkey, uh, I want to say Emmaus, but he's not, he, Damascus, on the Damascus road, he, he, he knocked him off, he blinded him, and then he told um, Ananias, I think, Ananias, Ananias, the guy he sent to pray for Paul, to baptize him in the Holy Spirit, to get the scales to fall off his eyes, tell him how he must suffer for my name. He got started off right in the beginning, right? He was made blind, and then as the first sermon he heard was, guess what? You get to suffer for Jesus. And, and he did, but he chose and he learned how to be content. And see, you're going through stuff right now where you think, where are you, God? You're going through stuff right now where you think, man, I don't know about God. Is he a good God? Isn't he a good God? Because we have strongholds in our mind that define what goodness looks like and how goodness would treat me. But see, God's goal for you is Christ. And he knows how to bring Christ in you and then out of you such that there's a process that you have to follow. And if, if we fight against that, Un, that understanding and against that process, it's miserable. There's never going to be any contentment because every trial, right? What, what, what's our life supposed to be? It's supposed to be comfortable. It's supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be so challenging. We're supposed to be entertained. I mean, you know, we have a cultural perspective on what life is supposed to be like that's very different than what it's like to become Jesus. And that's what we have to attack today. And when we come out of this, we have to make a decision of, what are we going to do with these scriptures that describe how God is making me to be like Jesus? Paul learned to be content. First Timothy chapter 6, 6 through 12. But godliness, or Christ-likeness, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. See, there's guys that were preaching, but they were preaching for their own personal gain, not for the, not for the glory of God. Paul is responding to that. He says, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. There's a first challenge for you. If all you had was a roof over your head, clothes for your body, you know, you weren't cold and you didn't freeze to death, and you had food to eat, would you be content? Nobody in our culture would be content. But Paul is telling us, God through Paul, that, that if, if that's, that's the only thing that we could say. If I don't have uh, covering and I don't have food, I have an excuse to not be content. Otherwise, we have to understand what's going on. We have to trust in God, and we can be content. We have to choose to be content. All right. In the world, I wrote a content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. See, the guy who, who goes after all these riches and stuff, and he gets them, he doesn't think he's been plunged into ruin and destruction. But read the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea. You think you're rich and have need of nothing, but you're blind, you're poor, you're wretched, and you're naked. Come by from me, gold, something or other, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see right. See, they were very prosperous in the world sense, and they, they didn't figure they needed anything from Jesus. So he wasn't important to them. But Jesus says, no, no, eternally and spiritually, you're blind, naked, wretched, whatever else that I said. I can't remember it all. 
That's the lens we need to see through. Now, do you have to be in that kind of what we would consider a miserable circumstance for God to be able to bring you into Christ-likeness? No, I don't think so, but you do have to have the process because that's how it worked. That's what had to, Jesus had to do. Okay, continuing on. Plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, that's an interesting end, right? We need to understand that it's going to be a fight. And it's not just a fight against the devil. It's a fight against ourselves. It's a fight against the culture. It's a fight against our flesh. It's a fight. Paul, in other places, talks about running a race. Run the race to the end. Only the guy that finishes the race gets the prize. Now, the, the race isn't against each other. The race is against the world, against the flesh, against falling away, against losing your faith. Those are the things that we're racing against. But there is no wreath. There is no crown of life to the one who doesn't actually finish the race. So we need to understand it's a fight. The second thing that's interesting here is um, take hold of the eternal life which you were called to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's speaking of baptism. That's baptism. When you got baptized, when you got baptized, right? We were all in your bathroom. Everybody in your bathroom. That had to be weird, right? And you were in there too, right? In, in your bathroom. And you made the confession in front of many witnesses. That's what you're holding fast to, your confession. You made the confession. Now you hold, hold fast to that thing because we saw it. So if we see you wandering away from the confession, we're going back in your bathroom and we're going to hold you under a little bit longer. And you come up. Yeah, we did. I wrapped her head right against the back of the tub. I think it was slippery, and she went, whoops, and, yep, yeah, right. I did do that. Forgive me, Lord. Everybody's like, all right, I don't want to be baptized by the head wrapper. Let's go to the lake, yeah, but it was like November. (laughs) Um, It's necessary to understand and accept the process God uses to bring about his will for us. If we surrender to the process and choose or learn, or maybe choose and learn to be content with it, first, we'll be changed. Second, we'll be most effective for the works God has planned for us. And third, we will take hold of the eternal life to which we were called. Yes, ma'am. Amen. Amen. There is no more important characteristic. People will say, well, what's the most important characteristic of a Christian? Love, 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 love. I don't think so. I think it's humility, right? Because love will flow from humility. How do you love somebody that abused you? You've got to humble yourself before what God says. Can I just... We watched a movie. You should all watch this movie. It's called Amish Grace. Is that the name of the movie, Amish Grace? Amish Grace. Some of you are probably too young to even remember this, but I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, this guy who'd lost a child in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, went to the Amish schoolhouse. He lost a daughter. He made all the little boys leave the schoolhouse 
and he shot all the little girls. A number of them were killed. And, you know, obviously that's huge news all around the world. Almost immediately after, oh, and he killed himself. He killed himself in there. Almost immediately, the elders of the Amish families took up a collection, rode their little buggies to that guy's house, went in the house and told his wife, we hold nothing against you. We forgive your husband. If you ever need anything from us, please call, and we've collected this money to help you in your time of grief. Annika can testify. She was sitting next to me. I cried. I cried. I mean, you think, big deal, you cried. I mean, you know, the wind was blowing, you cried. No. Seriously, all I could just think is, I am so honored that I could be called a brother of those people, that I would have any association with people that so understood God, that they wouldn't be bitter, they wouldn't be, as they're burying their children, they're embracing this woman who had no idea, I mean, just totally out of the blue. I mean, that's humility. That is humbling yourself before God. And don't you know, he was glorified. I don't know, you know, there was a story was kind of from the perspective of this um, TV news lady and the cameraman, and she's like, I think this is just a bunch of crap. Nobody's like this. Until she found out they were. And there was one mom of one girl that got killed that was struggling, really struggling. I won't forgive him. I can't forgive him blah, blah, blah. And just before she's getting ready to leave her community, somebody says, Mrs. whatever her name was, I wanted to tell you that your daughter asked the guy to kill him, kill her instead of other girls. And she asked him if she could pray for him. And all of a sudden, her, the mom saw the grace of God on the daughter as she's about to get killed. Her concern was for that man's soul, that she prayed for him. Not for her own, like, oh, maybe he won't shoot me. And man, the grace of God came over her, and then she repented, and she was willing to embrace this lady whose husband did this. I mean, it's, it's, it's just awesome. It's just absolutely awesome. And you're right. The second is obedience. But obedience flows from humility, right? You, you humble yourself before God's word. You humbled yourself before God's word. You forgave. In, in the humbling of yourself, even as the victim, grace came from God, and then you get delivered, just like that. Your friend, just like that. All these years, all this torment, all this miserable, all this whatever, nope. And maybe she got saved. She might not have been saved. You know, she never had a hope of forgiving him if she wasn't born again. How do you know? Well, maybe I'm not. Let's make sure we've got that base covered. She confronts it. She didn't. They're good words, and they're right on target. Amen. Okay. We'll be changed. We have to understand the process. We have to accept the process, humble ourselves before the process. We'll be changed. We'll be effective for what God's got for us to do, and we will ultimately end up in heaven. All while we fight that good fight of faith. If not, Acts 26, 14 through 18. This is, this is uh, Jesus speaking to the Apostle Paul. What, now, what did I say that's so funny? Okay, Kim made you laugh. I'm sorry. 
She said, well, you know, just for that, you can't come to church next week. All right. I'm going to send you to a hot and arid place where you just think about what you did to poor, poor Stevie back there. All right. So if we don't, if we don't humble ourselves and be obedient to the process, this is Jesus speaking to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus when he, you know, Jesus came down and confronted him. And when we had, this is Paul speaking, right? And when we had all fallen to the ground, or excuse me, yes, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, I think there's more to the Apostle Paul's story than we get just from the scriptures. We see the Apostle Paul persecuting the church. We see him at Stephen's death holding people's cloaks, acknowledging the thing. We see him going to the high priests and asking for written uh, permission and orders so that he could go and take captive these people who had turned from Judaism to the way, to Christianity, so that they could be persecuted, they could be jailed, they could be killed, right? We see that about Paul. But what we don't see, I think, now this is just according to Pat, but I can draw it from this scripture, is God trying to get Paul to repent. God trying to get Paul to repent. And what Paul was doing was kicking against the goads. A goad is like, um, if you could imagine a, a broomstick maybe, with a very sharp pointed end. And you're a farmer, and you need to get your field plowed, and you've got this ox who's got a different idea about what things ought to be, right? He's not real interested in spending all day long dragging your plow back and forth across the field. So you would take this thing called a goad, and you would point him in the direction. If he wants to go in a different direction, he didn't mind the reins, you'd give him a poke with the goad. And, and he would be like, ow, and he would kick against the goad. He's like, ow, quit poking me with that thing. You ever heard the phrase goading someone along, right? I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it, right? She gets in there, right? right? You give her a little poke with the goad. Get over there in the produce department, you. <laughs> what Paul was described as doing was kicking against the goad. The Lord was trying to move him. And when he wouldn't move, he was goading him. And Paul was like kicking against the goat because he had a thing and he was going to be about his thing. And that's what will happen to us. If we won't acknowledge and embrace the biblical process that God follows to bring us to be like Jesus, then we're forever kicking against the goats. He's prodding us. He's nice. I mean, sometimes he gets a little firm with us, right, to get us to the place where. Because, you see, you sang the song, Right? Test me, try me, prove me, refine me, like to fire, like the gold, like the gold. It's like, well, yeah, think about that song before you sing it. But it's a great song to sing. It's a great prayer to pray. But you've got to be able to understand that the way he's going to do it might not be exactly the way that you would like it done. But it's the only way it's going to get done. If Jesus had to be perfected through suffering, then how's God going to get us? He knows his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And he knows the way to get unruly, proud, disobedient Pat to a place of humility and obedience. And it's take me through the fire. The point is, it's no good kicking against the goats. It's miserable. You can't have the abundant life and you can't have the joy of the Lord and you can't have peace when you're kicking against the very process that you signed up for. So how does God work out Christ-likeness in his people? James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect. I'm adding this word, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So that maturity that's required comes through the testing of our faith. The testing of our faith is not comfortable. Faith is more precious than gold. I didn't include that scripture here, but, but your faith is more precious than gold. And, and God is going to continually test your faith, put you in situations. Terry doesn't have a job right now. She's in a situation where she could wonder about God's faithfulness. Except she's not going to because she has great faith. But her faith will be tested. And she'll say, no, sorry, devil, when you're whispering in my ear, right? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you because God is my provider and he will provide for me. And, and he might do it with a new job right away or he might let you just be tested for a while and then he'll let us do it and be his representative because he promised her that if she would seek his kingdom and his righteousness, that he would meet all of her needs. Piece of cake. If we have to do it, piece of cake. Why? Because he made us the same promise. The testing of your faith. Hebrews chapter 12, 4 through 11. This is kind of a long one. Speaking to us, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Think about this. If we're striving against sin, what are we striving for? What would be not sin? Righteousness, holiness, right? So, so the, the reason that we strive against sin is because we're striving for holiness, righteousness, Christ-likeness, because we actually want to be like Jesus. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Remember my, my early walk? God loves you so much. He wants to discipline you. I never heard that one, not one time. It gets even better, though. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Guess what? You got a whooping coming, too. Isn't that awesome? Who would sign up for that? When I used to talk like this, we had a lady, I mean, pretty substantial Christian lady. She'd say to me, why do you talk like that? I said, I'm just reading the Bible. Don't you know? Nobody. Nobody's going to want Jesus if you describe him that way. I'm like, I'm just reading how he describes himself. I mean, if we tell the truth, then people can get established properly in their faith. And then they don't have to worry about this stuff because God will give them the grace to walk through it instead of them fighting against the goads when it doesn't work out how they were told it was supposed to be. For the, those whom the Lord loves, he discipline, disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. I think I might just love you a little bit this afternoon, Annika. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It is for discipline. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not, not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, 
so that, there's that phrase again, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm just apologizing now. I'm going to be a little long. i tell you a story. Um, yesterday, I'm playing racquetball. i got a regular group of guys I play racquetball with. And before my knees, I could pretty regularly beat them most of the time. I'm not beating them so much anymore. And I pray before every shot, for, not every shot, for every volley, I pray, ask Jesus, help me, please. And uh, my friend Dave was having his way with me, whooping on me really, really good yesterday. I was getting so frustrated. And all of a sudden, the Lord started bringing, because I've had these scriptures for a week, you know, most of them. And he started letting me hear these scriptures. And, and the sense was, I am helping you. I said, but Dave's whomping on me. He said, I know, but I'm helping you. I'm, I'm not really having this kind of a conversation with the Lord, but I'm having these impressions. And the point is, I think I'm playing racquetball for the sake of racquetball, right? But the Lord care less about racquetball. I mean, I think he likes, you know, that I get a little exercise and whatnot. But racquetball is just another tool for him. Sometimes he... He lets me womp on the guys, and sometimes he doesn't because sometimes he might be working something in one of them, and sometimes he might be working something in me. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, Lord, you love me, and you're good. And it's not about racquetball. It's about so much more than silly racquetball. It's about making me to be like Jesus. And I have to learn how to be content when I'm not the guy whooping on the other guy, when I'm the guy getting whooped on, when I'm the guy watching the serve go by and I can't even take a step to get to it, he gets another point. Oh, gets one on this side. He gets one on this side. Gets one on this side. Over and over and over again, and I'm being tested. Am I going to get frustrated or am I going to embrace it? Am I going to find it pure joy when I experience trials of many kinds? Now, racquetball is nothing in the grand scheme of the world, but it's, it's a test for me. Because I think sometimes my identity wants to be tied up in, I could beat this guy and I could beat that guy and I could beat that guy. But my identity needs to be tied up in something that matters, something that's real, what God says about me. And, and if I can't learn to be humbled on a racquetball court, how is he going to use me for super important things in his kingdom work that he's got planned for me? I don't know what those things are. I never saw this coming. The point is that he was showing me and, and I started to rejoice. Why did I rejoice? Because I chose to because I didn't feel any joy in getting whomped on. But I understood the scriptures. And I said, thank you, Lord, because I don't know what's on the other side of this, but I know you work all things out to good. And ultimately, there's some part of me that's going to be more like Jesus as I go through this trial in the manner that you would have me to go through this trial. Yours might be driving a car and somebody tailgates you. Okay, that might be mine too. (laughs) I don't know what yours are. I don't even know what all mine are. But he's teaching me. And now I get to make a decision. Dave going to beat me up? Is it because I've, you know, got bad knees or who knows what? Or, or is God letting something happen that's going to help me to be more like Jesus? If I look at it from that perspective, I say, amen, Dave, you know, knock yourself out. Because that's not where my identity is supposed to be found. And I had to learn through the trial. Okay. Share his holiness. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That, and that's what we want, right? Somebody texted me today. Oh, it was Dan from Florida, Dan and Karen. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? So one of the ways I might hunger and thirst for righteousness is to be tested and tried in these ways that bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So that we may share his holiness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our vacation might need to come pretty quick, huh? Second <laughs> Corinthians four, seven through eleven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Guess what the earthen vessel is? Raise your hand, it's you. You're the earthen vessel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. Another important so that. All that dying, so that the life of Jesus, us being like Jesus, may be manifest, not when we get to heaven, but in our mortal bodies, that we might bring about God's will in our mortal bodies. So then, the outcome of the process, it's a never-ending process. There will be a point when we go to be with the Lord. If it's when the rapture happens, then we're glorified then. If it's prior to when the rapture comes, our bodies will be glorified. But we will be glorified. The process will be finished when we go to be with the Lord eternally. From today until then, whenever that is for any of us, the process of bringing about Christ in us is continuing. So the outcome kind of looks like this in the Scriptures. 1 Peter 5.10 After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Second thing that you can see is the outcome. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Remember, you didn't come into this world with anything. You can't take anything out of this world. But you can store for yourself stuff in heaven if you want to. Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? It says this momentary light affliction, that suffering, that affliction that we go through is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far and beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we'll be perfected, confirmed, strengthened, and established. We are producing, or the, the affliction is actually producing an eternal weight of glory. And then finally, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So 
as you go through this process of transformation that is a process of light affliction, of suffering, of the testing and the trying of your faith, all these things are going on, one of the things that comes, one of the so that's that comes is that you get to prove the will of God. You get to come here on the Sunday night when we have the healing room and you get to prove the will of God. When somebody comes in in a wheelchair and you get to prove the will of God. When somebody comes in here with cancer and you get to prove the will of God. When somebody comes in and he shows you the heaviness that's on their shoulders and you say, no way, that's not how it's supposed to be. Now, Mine was, let me go get Teresa. You don't need her. You could do it yourself. But the point is, you can prove the will of God, that somebody would know their identity and they wouldn't be bound up anymore. How? By changing the way we think, by understanding the process, by accepting the process, by going through the process, we get to prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those are pretty good outcomes of being like Jesus. And if you remember Francis Chan and the rope, right? Imagine a rope with a start and no finish. If you walked 100 miles along that rope, you wouldn't find the end. If you walked 1,000 miles, you got on an airplane and went to Tanzania following that rope, you wouldn't find the end. But at this end, at the start, there's a little red part. That little red part represents this life of trials and testing and perfecting unto the likeness of Jesus Christ such that that part, can have the eternal weight of glory that you can't even imagine. Who would make that trade? Nobody would make that trade if they, if they thought about it, right? So that's what we're doing here today. We're thinking about it. So let's go back then and let's look at that prayer, that song. This actually made me blush a little. Let me just start at the beginning. Awake, awake, O north wind. Awake, awake, O south wind. Blow over me. Come, O winds of testing. Come, winds of refreshing blow over me. Let the winds blow. So I'm trying to figure out, I'm, it's Misty Edwards that sings this song. I don't know if she wrote it or not, but Misty Edwards sings this song. And I have a sense for what she's saying, but I don't know exactly. So I'm trying to figure out, did she, have, did she write down, you know, this is what this song means. I couldn't find that. So I started poking around. That first part comes from Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. How many of you ladies have read that book in the Bible? Okay, how many of you men have read that book of the Bible? Somebody help him with this whole gender identity issue he has. I'm telling you what, I can't read that book without blushing. And, and it's, it's hard, the, the, the poetry and the, the symbolism and all the stuff they use. But I'm sure from the song, this is what Misty Edwards interprets. And the commentators interpret the same way. Awake, awake, O north wind. The north wind is representing a cold wind, an uncomfortable wind that would blow across us. And, and the person who's praying this prayer is understanding the process and wanting to be like Jesus. So they're asking that God would blow this, this cold, uh, difficult wind against them. Come, O winds of testing. That's the north wind. Come, winds of refreshing. That's the warm south wind. And, and don't you know that he does? He, he blows the south wind like he blows the north wind. And, and, and you have to be able to accept both, right? Because sometimes people get so steeped in the brokenness that they have that they can't even receive the warm breeze. 50 years. Too hard to confront it. Too painful. Don't want to think about it. Come, O winds of refreshing. Man, that grace showed up and bam, just like that. Song of 
songs or Solomon 4.16. Awake, awake, excuse me, awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my... <laughs> awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. There's, there's lots of imagery in here. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted, wafted, wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Again, everybody's got an opinion from Song of Solomon. But the way I see it is that, that the garden is us. And when God blows the north wind and he blows the south wind and he makes us more like Jesus, we become a more fragrant garden. And, and he can come in to the garden and he can be really pleased by the fragrance and the, the choice fruits that, that, that are produced by the way that the garden gets how the garden needs to be. The song goes on, fling wide the door to my soul, open up the door to my heart. That takes courage. Because there's some stuff that's hidden in our hearts that's very painful. That, that we, we have chosen or, or been afraid to confront for 50 years even. Right? But we have to be courageous like Patty was courageous. We have to be courageous like Dana's friend was courageous. And, and open up our hearts. You, you know, it's interesting when, when I was, you know, I, got, I was in church. I don't remember, you know, I don't know exactly when I got born again. But I can remember we always sat in the front. And during the worship, all the people, this is, what, this is what I noticed about the guy. He'd be down on his knees in between two rows of chairs. Like he's got the back of that chair almost in his mouth. He's so, and he didn't care. And he's got this joy as he's praising and singing the songs. I said to Teresa one day, I remember it. I'm like, I don't get the songs. What's the thing with all, all the songs? Why do you sing the songs, you know? Because I didn't have the Lord. I didn't know, right? But I could see that guy. And we would get up in the, we would be in the front later and all the people would be like, I wanted to raise my hand so bad, but I was afraid. What's somebody going to think about me? Really, I was only concerned with what Teresa would think about me. And I would stand there like this. And I'd be looking up. And Teresa would be like this. I mean, you know, that dumb devil. Like, she's doing it. Why can't I do it? She's going to think I'm dumb, but she's not. Right? And I'm watching her. And she'll be like this. And, and she'll turn a little bit, and I'd go. And she started to turn back, and I'd go like this. And then a little while, maybe a week, two weeks, you know, Teresa's not going to look for her head, goes to look over this way. I'm like, she's coming back. <laughs> and one day, I just did it. She never said I was dumb. She never said I looked silly. But what happens when you do this, when you're worshiping God? You're opening yourself up. You're saying, Lord, come, touch my soul. What does Psalm 23 say? He restores my soul. Not if you don't let him at it. He, he heals your heart. And when you do this, I think what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I'm, I'm not protecting myself one bit. I'm not protecting myself at all. Come and just do what you need to do with me to make me like Jesus, to make me whole, to break the bonds of wickedness over my life. Have your way. Then it goes on to say, I won't be afraid. I will face the wind. I won't be afraid. I will face the flame. Fear or lack of trust in God actually going to do what the word says is the hugest enemy that we have, right? 
fear would try to get Daniel when he didn't have a job with a mortgage, with a family, to try to embrace mammon. To be remember the scripture about those that strive for riches, can't serve two gods, you can't serve wealth and God. That's what all that is about. Fear is a huge tool that the enemy used to keep us bound up. It cripples us. I won't be afraid. I won't be afraid. When fear comes, I'm going to submit to God, resist the devil, and he must take his fear with him. Then it says, take me through the fire. Take me through the rain. Take me through the testing. I'll do anything. Test me. Try me. Prove me. Refine me. Like the gold. Like the gold. That's why it's an adult song. Because you're asking God to do those kinds of things which his word indicates are the things that have to be done if you're going to be made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the embrace of the process. So, sneaky folks that we are, J.D., I'm ready for you. Sneaky folks that we are, we're going to sing that song again. <laughs> and, and you guys are going to have to, depending on wherever you're at, decide what to do with it. But, but the glory is in the humility. The glory is in the obedience. The glory is in the surrender. So I'll just summarize one more time. First, we need to understand. Do you have a sense for understanding the process? Secondly, we need to embrace the process. Both the process and the contentment that's required. If if you embrace the process, then you can be content as you go through the process. How is it that we be content during trials and testing and suffering? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Trust him. When you don't have any money, trust him. When you don't know how something's going to work out, trust him. Trust him. Trust him. He is so turned on by faith. He is so turned off by unbelief. But God, how can I? What if you don't? What if you don't? Stop it. Stop having that conversation. Seriously, God wants to do everything for us that you see in those scriptures. Maybe not always for the reasons that we think, but when he says he is our Jehovah provider, I'm not sure which one it is, Jireh, thank you. Thank you to the new lady, good job. When he says, I am Jehovah Rapha, he means it, I'm your healer. When it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, the one who heals me from all my diseases, he means it, trust him. Trust him. I told Treese when we were watching that movie, you know, in between snobbles and sniffles and whatevers, I said, if that ever happened to us, and I don't want it to ever happen to us, I, would, I don't want to be tested that way. But if it does, I would be like the, the elders of that church. I just knew it in my heart I would be that way. I would so want to glorify God in that way that I know I would be that way. We did, yeah. But, I mean, that wasn't like, you know, some guy murdered him. There was nobody to be mad at when Joe passed away. Yeah, but trust in God, saying amen, thank you for taking Joe, God, because you did what's right. Who am I to decide what's right? You get to decide what's right. So J.D.'s going to play for a minute. Maybe, um, Caitlin, could you just bring these big lights down? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a few minutes and contemplate this. Think about what it is in your life 
That's the trial. Remember, if you establish in your heart that God is good and that no matter what you experience in life, your son dies, your children are shot in a schoolroom, somebody gets cancer, you get cancer. No matter what, if you establish in your heart that nothing can move you off the fact that God is good, then it changes everything. It changes everything. So you think about what it is that you're being tested with and whether or not you're ready to embrace the process. And do that. Do that right now. We're going to just take some minutes and do that. And maybe you're experiencing the south wind right now and not the north wind. Thank God for that. But until you can look in the mirror and see Jesus reflected, you can count on the north wind is going to come. In a minute, you're going to invite it. If you're ready to embrace that process, then find somebody right now and pray with them. Ask them to to agree with your prayer. Your prayer might be, Father, I thank you for opening my eyes. I thank you that you know better than I know. I thank you that if I would trust in you with all my heart, you will make my path straight. And I just trust you, Lord. I'm, I'm opening up my heart to you. I'm embracing the wind, Lord. And just ask him to do it. Tell him you're ready. You're ready to do it. And then you might want to ask him through Holy Spirit to remind you when he's doing it so that you can stay focused and understand that God is doing it because he loves you, because he wants you to be able to share in his holiness. So find somebody to pray with you, to agree with you in that prayer. Seriously, pray with someone. Let them let your words come out of your mouth so that somebody can hear you. Remember the thing about baptism, holding fast to your confession that you'd made in front of all these different people? Whether you realize it or not, this is the confession. This is part of it. But have the boldness, have the courage to let your lips speak this back to the Lord. Let somebody hear it. Teresa, I embrace the flame. I am ready. I am ready, Lord. I, I know that in some ways I've embraced the flame. I've embraced the fire. I imagine there's other ways I've resisted it, Lord. I, I am telling you that I agree with your purpose. I'm speaking it in front of my wife. I'm speaking it in front of this whole congregation, Father. I embrace your process because I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like me. I know that I'm unique, that you thought more thoughts about me than you than were grains of sand on this whole earth because there's a uniqueness to me that's absolutely beautiful and it's by your design. I'm not talking about that, Lord. I'm talking about anything that's not about me that's not like Jesus. Lord, I want to be like Jesus and I embrace the process. I accept the process, Lord. I ask you to bring forward the process. I want, Lord, that every single work that you prepared for me before the foundations of this world to be accomplished. I want to be pleasing in your sight. I want my garden to be a beautiful, fragrant aroma to you, to Jesus, to my my groom in heaven. I ask you, Lord, through your spirit to remind me like you did on Saturday when I was playing racquetball, Lord, so that I won't struggle into thinking that you don't love me because you're letting me lose a racquetball game of all silly things. Father, I, I just ask you that you do like you did and you just remind me, son, I'm doing for you what you asked so that you can be like the firstborn of many sons. And I just say thank you, Father. I say thank you. And I do it in Jesus' name. And Lord Jesus, I say it to you too in your very name. Thank you.
And Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will embrace this. Each and every one of us will embrace this, Lord. The more we look like Jesus, the brighter the city on a hill is. The more we look like Jesus, the more people get free. The more people get saved. The more that the enemy has to flee, Lord. So we just thank you. We thank you that you know what's best. You're an awesome God. We don't have to look past the cross to wonder about your goodness.